be a strong and faithful Christian in the nine to five every day of the week as you are here on Sunday. Our Christian walk should be evident in the workshop, in the warehouse, in the office, in the schoolroom, in the supermarket, in the car park, in the surgery, in the kitchen, on the sporting field, on the golf course, wherever and whatever you do. That's where Jesus is calling you to shine his light. That's where he's calling you to be that salt for him. But in the church today, generally speaking, there's a reluctance to live in obedience to God's call upon us. And my hope tonight is that I can encourage you and we can encourage each other, or perhaps for the first time, you'll come to Jesus. You'll ask for his forgiveness. You'll commit the rest of your lives to him. And that commitment will be in living obedience to his word. And you will proclaim his name and his goodness at every opportunity. Let's pause and pray. Father, I thank you that you called a wretch like me. I thank you that you have transformed my life. And Lord, my desire tonight is very simple. I ask that people hear you. I ask that people will respond to you. And I ask the message that I proclaim in your name is a clear message. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, regardless of what subject we talk about in church or in Bible studies or whatever, uh, I think it's very valuable uh, or very informative to take that subject and then ask, well, where is this first mentioned in Scripture? What, what can we look at in Scripture and what does Scripture actually say about that? So, in talking about being disobedient to God, uh, I think we should perhaps just refer to the first time this actually happened. And I'm sure that the vast majority of you here will be able to remember the Genesis story. And in Genesis 2, we have Adam and Eve, and they have this idyllic setting. I mean, it's, it's what we all desire and hope for, isn't it? They're in this perfect garden. Everything is exactly as you would want it to be. The Lord ministers and meets with them face to face in this garden, and there are no issues. There's no problems. There's no cockroaches, Elena. There's no spiders. There's no snakes. Not ones that attack you anyway, and cockroaches do attack apparently. But... Um, it's just this perfect setting and everything like that. And this is chapter 2 of Genesis. And then we move into chapter 3. And we learn that in chapter 3, there was this... Um... Man, I'm having fun with this tonight, aren't I? Okay, we'll just forget that for a while. Um... So in, in chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, we have the serpent introduced to us and we're told that the serpent is more crafty uh, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And it's a little bit of a twist on what God did really say. And Eve responds by saying that they may eat of all the trees in the garden, but they may not eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, and neither should they touch it. Again, there's just a little bit of a twist on what was actually said there in the original. And she says that we are not to do that, or we will die. And Satan responds, oh, there we go, thank you. You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's Satan saying to Eve 
in this situation. And Adam was there too, so he's basically saying it to him. There's no cop-out for us guys. We should have stopped her. But Satan's saying, God doesn't mean you're literally going to die. He couldn't mean that. He isn't that intolerant. He just told you that because he doesn't want you to be as smart as he is. He's holding something back from you. And it's something that's going to benefit you. It's something that is going to be good. And this is the father of lies who is speaking. He offered false wisdom to Eve. He wanted Eve to believe that she could think for herself, make her own choices, be the ruler of her destiny. And no one else has the right to do that for her. She should be able to do that for herself. And I wonder if we hear that voice today. I wonder if it's the same voice that is echoing down through all of man, mankind's history. It happens even here in the church. Pastor Darrell and myself attempt to faithfully proclaim God's word. And we are sometimes confronted by people who say, you can't tell me what to do. I can make my own choices. And that's true. We can't. But the word we proclaim, we believe, is from God. And we have this whole world out there who's saying, there is no way that Jesus would say there's only one way to get to heaven. Surely all roads lead to God. If God is a truly loving God, how could he condemn any of us? Love wins. And I'm sure when it comes that day, God will just love me and everything's going to be fine. And there's so many other things. This is my life. I should be able to do what I want. And sadly... So many buy into those lies. And even us as a people of God are affected by them. We're influenced by them. And I know you find that incredibly hard to believe. But the Barna Group, they, they do a lot of Christian research and everything like that. This is difficult to read, I know. The second last line at the bottom says 47%. That is 47% of millennial evangelical Christians believe they should not be proclaiming their faith. 47% believe they should not be proclaiming their faith to someone who holds another belief. But it's worse than that. The leaders of the church have allowed the gospel to be watered down to a moral code. There's so many people who've grown up in the church, generally speaking. They went to kids' church, they went to youth group, they went to camps, their parents are Christians, so they must be. And yet if you asked and pushed it, many would say that they've never heard the gospel. What they did here was don't have sex before marriage, don't hang with the bad crowd, don't get drunk, don't go out with non-Christians, be careful what you watch, be careful what you read, be careful what you listen to. And what they hear is moralistic. If you're good enough, God will love you. If you do all these things, he will reward you. And these are people who would most likely be able to articulate the gospel message, but they haven't heard it themselves. 
They have this moral checklist in hand and all the boxes are ticked, but they don't know Jesus. They have not experienced living in his presence and power. They haven't had a life transformed. And I want to take this time to apologize. I want to repent for myself and my fellow leaders who've done this, who've allowed this to happen. This whole series has been about reminding you, challenging you to be taking your role as Jesus' ambassadors, his messengers of the gospel very seriously and understanding that each and every believer is called to tell others about Jesus. But tonight, I think we've got to take a step back. And I want to ask you, are you a Christian? And I know some people are going to be offended. But God has called me as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I'm not asking people if they are a Christian, then I'm failing in my role. You should sack me. And if I'm failing in that role, I will gladly go. But I honestly believe that no Christian would be offended in me asking that question. So if you find that question offensive, I've got to ask you why. Because I've asked Christians this and we've shared together and been able to just encourage each other when we find just this common ground in Christ. Uh, turn with me, if you will, if you've got your Bibles. I don't know if you do or you don't, but uh, please, let's just turn to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15. So reading uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, I want to look at verses 1 to 6. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, that which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And this is an incredible passage of Scripture. Paul says, first and foremost, I want to remind you, I want, brother, I want you brothers to think about that gospel that I preached to you. You received that message, you accepted that message, and now you are standing in it. I don't know about you. But I need reminding a lot. Um, people have seen my calendar. They've seen my diary. I've got everything in there because if it's not in there, I'm not going to remember. And my wife will constantly say, hey, remember this happened last week? And I'll go, no. Nah. She goes, you know, we did this and this and this. And I'm like, no. Nah. And so I need constant reminding. And so Paul is speaking to believers here and he's saying, hey, guys, I'm reminding you about the gospel. I'm reminding you about this stuff. You need to remember, don't forget. And I think we live in a time now where so much is crowding in upon us. And our young people, my goodness, they expect spontaneous answers. They punch a message to their friends and they wait to get a response. Do you remember the days when you, know, like you had to send a letter? Yeah, you know, and if it went overseas, you were waiting like a month if they replied straight away. But now we want everything instantly and we're just bombarding our minds with so much information that the things of Christ get pushed to the fringe. And I think we need to take the time, especially young people, put it aside, 
Turn off the computer, turn off your phones, put it aside, pick up the word. Remind yourself of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind yourself of the incredible thing he has done for you. I can speak about what Jesus has done in my life. I can speak about the incredible transformation he's made. I can tell you I was not a nice person. My wife will tell you I wasn't a nice person when she met me either. I don't know why she married me. But the reality is that there's been this transformation and he has made such a difference in my life that he even called me to be a pastor. And I don't understand that. But I'm so thankful that he did. And we need to tell people about that transformation. We're so blessed to hear the testimony of those who are being baptized. And by the way, there's another baptismal service in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. I'm excited. So, you know, we, we hear those stories, those accounts of people, and they speak about the transformation that has occurred in their life. What is the gospel? Paul preached. That's in verses 3 and 4 here, isn't it? For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the gospel message. And that's the message the poor proclaimed. That's the message they received. Jesus died for my sins. And my friends, he died for each and every one of you. There is not a sin that is too big for the cross. Christ paid the price once and for all. And you can bank on it. You haven't done anything that would keep you from the Lord Jesus Christ. He stands with open arms waiting to welcome you. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. And we as Christians receive this message. And when we receive this message, we're acknowledging that by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We receive this message of the gospel and it means that I've experienced the grace of God, his undeserved favour upon me and I've received his mercy. He withheld the punishment that I rightly deserved. And it wasn't a one-off thing for me. It was something that continues. I'm standing in his grace. He continues to pour his mercy, his grace, his love, his provision into my life each and every day. And it doesn't mean that I have this perfect life. It doesn't mean I live without doubts. It doesn't mean I don't struggle. It doesn't mean I don't mess up. But I can't walk away. I've experienced this grace and mercy of God. When I did, I was changed forever and I can't walk away. What else is on offer? It's just like um, Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if your form of Christianity is just a moral code, you can walk away. It doesn't mean anything. You've just been trying to live up to a standard. A moral code doesn't bring around that inner transformation. A moral code doesn't open your eyes to the reality of the one true God who so desperately loves me and loves you and has done all he can to make a way for us to have a relationship with him and to spend all of eternity with him. The gospel message I received is the one that was in that Corinthian passage. 
I was saved. I was justified. I was put back into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am being saved. This is my sanctification. This is my daily being put aside for Christ's use and purposes. It is my willingness to submit fully to him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I will be saved. There's going to come a day when I'm going to die. And I'm going to enter the presence of eternity, the presence of my Lord. I'm going to see him face to face. That's going to be an incredible time. I will be saved when I'm glorified in his presence. He's going to be waiting for me. And all of this, nothing to do with who I am. Nothing to do with what I've done. But all because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. I believe... Every human being is created in God's image. I believe we were created to have relationship with God. And that is why I believe we are called to reach out to those who don't yet know Jesus. And I believe this is affirmed again and again in Scripture. When we look back to the first mention of mankind in Scripture, we see God created Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. And when he was completed, he looked at it and he said it was good. But he didn't only just say it was good. He said it was very good. And then in chapter 3, we have the fall. Everything that existed was created for God and his glory. And so in God sending Jesus, he wanted to reconcile all of creation to himself. He wanted to make right again that which was wronged. And it's not just about me, it's about all of creation. I think many of us are like Adam and Eve. They knew God. They were in his presence. They enjoyed his presence. But they loved themselves a little bit more. And I think that's true for us. I think that's true for me. There's times when I love myself a little bit more. I know God. I love being with him. But there's times I think of myself before him. And I think I know better than God. And I reach for that forbidden fruit again just like Eve did. We believe the lies that are whispered in our ears. So many approach the Bible and the commands it contains as if they're suggestions. You don't have to obey them. Do them if you will. Even, if this, even in this series, there's people who have said that what is being taught doesn't apply to them. Just pull your Bibles out, check the footnotes. Your name's not there as an exclusion. This is for each and every one of us. But there's good news even in this. How does God respond to those who don't honour him? How does God respond to those who ignore him? How does God respond to those who continue in a life of sin? He moves towards them. He doesn't treat us or our actions the way we deserve. His desire is that not one would be lost and so he moves towards us. He calls us. He wants to draw us to him. We live in an age where we're so hung up about confessing sin. Look at this passage. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Who has a sin listed there that they've committed? Every hand should be up. Every hand. The reason being, we look at lists like this, and we think these are incredibly bad people. These are the evil of evil. So if you didn't put your hand up, you've never committed idolatry. You've never placed something above God, ever. Because that's what idolatry is. It's allowing something to take God's rightful place in your life. So if you've never committed idolatry, you've been perfectly obedient to him your entire life. I I don't think any of us can say that. You've never stolen anything? You've never received praise that wasn't rightfully yours. You've never allowed someone to think that you did something you didn't do. And then, of course, there's the physically taking something as well. And this reviling, you've never spoken ill of anyone. You've never slandered someone's name or accepted the same slander from someone else. The simple truth is, we have all sinned. I've done some pretty dumb things in my life. You'd be shocked. And seriously, I think it's not just the dumb things I've done. It's being so dumb as to believe I could cover them up. I could conceal them. I could hide them. And I'd be safe. No one would ever find out about what I did wrong. And it's like trying to wipe this muddy mess off a piece of glass and all I succeeded in doing was smearing it. I didn't improve it, I made it worse. It made it glaringly obvious. What I did was useless. And I couldn't do anything to make up for my mistakes. But God wasn't repelled. God wasn't disgusted. God moved towards me. Listen to what he says to me and to all of those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. He says, some of you were like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. My efforts to cleanse my sin, my efforts to overcome those things amounted to nothing. But I was washed by Jesus. I was cleansed by him. And I have nothing to fear anymore. Jesus is the answer. There is nothing else. He died for our sins and once and for all. And when we read scripture, don't be fooled into thinking that Jesus is plan B. He was always plan A. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament is all about Jesus. When he was born, when he lived upon this earth, when he died, when he ascended, and it's about his life now, and it's about the fact that he is going to return to us. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is what Scripture is all about. There's no other story contained there. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, it begins this inner transformation. 
Jesus isn't interested in an external moral code. Think about how he spoke to the religious leaders when he walked this earth. They had this outward appearance of spirituality. They had this outward appearance of obeying everything as they should. But he constantly said things like, You have heard it said, but I say to you, You've heard it said not to murder. But I say to you, if you are angry with your brother, it's the same. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you think lustfully about a woman, it's this transformation. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, this inner transformation begins. He's only interested in that eternal transformation. Internal transformation, sorry. I want you to think about the conversations you may have had with people who've struggled with sin over your lifetime. We have this tendency to say, that's okay. We all sin. Try a little bit harder next time. And we unknowingly put upon them that this is all about effort. This is all about trying a little bit harder. This is all about trying to do something a little bit better than what you did before. And, you know, if you just try a little bit harder, you'll succeed next time and everything will be okay. Jesus died so that we could have victory over sin. Do you believe that? So what does victory over sin mean? Do we need to try a little bit harder? I've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are my sins wiped clean? I'm going to stand in his presence in glory. And when God looks upon me, he's not going to see Charlie. He's not going to see all the things I messed up. He's going to look at the righteousness of Christ, which is imparted on me at that time. I've been cleansed from my sins. It's an incredible thing. Look at these passages of scripture. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. In the Lord Jesus Christ. For sin has no dominion over you, since you are no longer under law but under grace. And so I get back to the question I asked right at the start Are you a Christian? Because we're living in this day and this time where sin is so rampant, even in the church. And I've got to ask you Have you killed sin? Because that's what we're called to do. We are to hate the sin in our life so much that we will put it to death. And is that your attitude towards sin? Or do you perhaps like to dwell in it a little bit? We should hate sin. I want to ask you, be honest with yourself. You can fool me. You can say whatever you want. I won't know if you're telling the truth or not. I want you to ask yourself, when you sin... Are you troubled? Is there something that just breaks? Is is your conscience uncomfortable, restless? Because you know that you've done something that you should not have done. I'd love to get a show of hands, but we're not going to go there. Because if you don't have that restlessness when you sin, if you don't feel a stirring is calling you to repent I've got to ask are you a Christian because if you've got Holy Spirit living in you that sin's an abomination he hates it and you should hate it too do you feel remorseful do you feel bad do you feel dirty or whatever Or do you think 
no one knows. So it doesn't matter. If you're not bothered with sin, are you a Christian? I believe God's call upon us is for each and every one of us as believers to be his messengers of hope in this world. I believe scripture clearly states that. And I believe there are no exceptions. And again, the awesome thing about God is that he's made a way for us. The weapon we have to overcome the consequences of sin is confession and repentance. But we're so reluctant to do that. Yeah. We don't want people to know the bad stuff we've done. When I applied for this job, I said, you can scrap the application straight away if you don't let them know that I'm divorced. The reason I did that, I didn't want anyone to find out later. I I, I didn't want people to say, hey, wait a tick, he's been concealing this. And this is the thing, guys. If we were to confess our sins, if we were to allow our brothers and sisters to gather around us and pray for us, if we were to understand the struggles that each and every one of us had, we can pray together and overcome those things. And you know what? There's nothing to be revealed. There's nothing that is going to shock us because it's out there. And you know what's really beautiful about that as well? If someone is struggling with a particular sin and we know someone in the church who's overcome it because they've confessed it, they've repented, they've told us about the journey they've been on with Christ, that's the person who can help this person and guide them through the difficulties that they're facing. That is what community is about. That is what God intended for the church to be, a community that is united regardless of what happens because we have such love and compassion and care for each other that we want to see us growing in Christ. And it doesn't matter about our past because I know my past. And I know how wicked and evil and bad I've been. But I've been cleansed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who confess their sins to the Lord Jesus Christ are cleansed. They're made new. I put to death my old self and I rise to new life in Christ. It's a life where dominion has, sorry, sin has no dominion over me. It no longer is my king. It is no longer my Lord. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Saviour. And he has paid the price for my sin. We are called to walk in the light. We are the light of the world and we're not to walk in darkness. We're to get all darkness out of us. Unconfessed sin is darkness. And when we confess our sins, that darkness is removed. I, I really hope you Get this, I really hope you understand the importance of confession and repentance. The struggles we face. How many of you are sitting there with a sin that you committed some time ago and Satan's hammering you with it? You're no good. If they knew that sin that you committed, if they knew how bad you were, they wouldn't even talk to you. That's a lie. It's a lie from the father of lies. And we need to admit that. We need to accept that. And we need to ask Jesus to give us the guts, the intestinal fortitude to come to the front and confess our sins. Satan may remind you of the sins you've committed. But we need to point back to 1 Corinthians 6. Yep, you're right, Satan. That was me. But I've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am cleansed. What about you, Satan? 
because he's not. Why all this? This series has been about speaking to others about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know who you believe, if you don't know the depth of love and the grace that we are found in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't understand the forgiveness that you've received, how can you possibly tell others about it? And we prayed for revival for such a long period of time in this church and there's people who still faithfully pray for revival. And revival only comes through humbling ourselves before God through that repentance and confession once again. And when that occurs here at SDBC, our relationships with each other are going to be vastly changed. There's going to be greater unity amongst us. And people will see it. They will see the love that we have for each other. They will understand that there's something happening here which is otherworldly. It is not of this world. And that is because it is a work of Jesus Christ alone. And they'll be drawn to that. They will be drawn to that. When we get this right, we can be more effective in the call that God has on each and every one of us individually. Is the work that he's called us to important? Is the call upon your life something that he values? And has he called you for a purpose and a reason? William Booth has this incredible quote. I want to share it with you in closing. Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible. And hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come here. Then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. God help us all to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love that so prompted Jesus to come to this earth to live fully as a man, to live perfectly, to take my sin, our sin upon himself, Lord, and die in our place. God, I thank you. He didn't stay dead. But he rose on the third day, proving that he had conquered the power of sin and death, Lord. And he ascended into glory. And he sits at God's right hand, interceding for us. Oh, and Jesus, I ask you to intercede for us now. I know you've spoken to people tonight. Oh, God, just move amongst us by the power of Holy Spirit. And allow us to take the steps we need to take to get this right with you. Please, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.